0: Let me introduce here a new series this morning that we're going to be doing for the next three weeks. It's relatively short, but we're looking ahead to later on in the summer where we're going to be starting a different series on spiritual and emotional health. So in preparation for a series on spiritual emotional health that Pastor Dante will hopefully be back and leading, we want to take three weeks to sort of prime the pump for that and sort of get our hearts ready for that. So what we're doing is we're calling this little series Lessons from the Life of David, and we're going to jump right into the middle of the story of David's life from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 23. So grab a Bible. If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to give you one. You can keep it if you would like. Um, in that white-covered Bible that we're handing out, it's on page 211, page 211, okay, or around there, depending on the, which one you get handed. They might be different. 1 Samuel chapter 23. All right, so as you're turning to that passage, let me give you a little bit of the backstory here. We are jumping right into the middle of the life of David, so I want to tell you about the context that we're jumping into. We are jumping right into the middle of the story of the nation of Israel, God's people, right at the beginning of the era of the monarchy when they had kings. This is about 1000 BC, a few hundred years after the Israelites came out of Egypt, and they had, uh, the Israelites had demanded a king, and they had Saul become the first ruler of Israel. He disobeys God. He's rejected as king. And so for some time, as we come to this chapter, Saul, the king of Israel, has been growing increasingly evil and paranoid. You can see his, his heart sort of disintegrating into this really dark, dark place. And David, who we're going to read about, David has been anointed the new king to replace Saul, but he's not the king yet. So as we jump into chapter 23 this morning, and over the next three weeks, as we go through the, the, sort of the next three chapters, we're going to see that David and Saul are total opposites in every single way. Every time that we come to a story or a narrative about these two men, they're going to be drawn out as total opposites. You see David growing to be a wise, godly king, and Saul descending into this foolish, being a foolish, evil man. So we pick up the story here in chapter 23. David is on the run. Let me tell you about where we're at. He's being pursued by Saul and Saul's army. Okay, Saul wanted to murder David because he sees David as a threat to the throne. David's traveling around in the wilderness with this band of, kind of a small band of fighters around the Judean hillside, and they just come in the previous chapter, 22, to a priestly city called Nob. Okay, The priestly city called Nob. Now, this, this is where the, the priest gave David and his men the bread from the tabernacle, the sacred bread to eat because they were hungry, and it was sort of this weird thing. Are they violating some of the rules of the holiness of God by doing this, okay? Um, David and his men ate the sacred bread, and they went on their way. Saul, the king, finds out that they did this, and he comes into Nob and destroys the entire city, everyone gone, including all the priests of the Lord, and only one escaped, and comes running to David and tells him what happened. And that's where we pick up the story here. So as we consider this this really difficult period of David's life over the next three weeks, I want you to see how God purposefully plunges David into deeper and deeper trouble so that God would refine David and train him to be a king after God's own heart. That's, That's what's going on here. So our passage today is about prayer, and about how prayer was the foundation on, on which that David depended on God. And I think that the Lord wants to challenge us this morning with this also. I think that God wants to challenge you and your heart to ask you if you've considered this. That God wants to refine and train you to be aligned with his heart. And in order to do that, maybe the first place to start in order to know God's heart is to Pray. So here's where we're going we're gonna to jump into this story. David's on the run from Saul. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to read all 29 verses. 1 Samuel chapter 23. So listen to this story. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kalah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kalah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kalah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kalah. Now, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Kalah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, it was told Saul that David had come to Kalah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kalah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant, surely has heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surely surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, "'Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. "'You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. "'Saul, my father, also knows this.'" And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah and saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hills of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and on our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. No one see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Moan. And when Saul heard this, he pursued David in the wilderness of Moan. Saul went to the one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Ein Gedi. That's the word of the Lord. Okay, let me give you a little bit of the recap of the situation here. Um, It's a really fascinating story as we see Saul pursuing David and everything that was happening. Okay, David here is rising up to be the godly king that Saul never was. Do you see that happening? He portrays his kingly care for his people by coming to the aid of this town of, called Kala as they were being attacked by Philistines. Now, this town was located, it was one of the towns of Israel. It was located in the, the, the part of Israel known as the okay? it's this era, It's this area or region of Israel that's like the California foothills. If you want to look at this map here, I'll show you just a little bit of where this is. That black arrow on the left is kind of that area where the Chefe La region is. OK, in the, the one on the right, you'll see the colors sort of draw out the relief of where the mountains are. So everything that's orange or yellow is the hill country. And then to the left of that, that flat area near the Mediterranean, is all of this flatlands, okay, all the bottomlands. So the area on the yellow, right in between the mountains and that flat area, is this rolling hills of agriculture. It's like the North Bay. Okay, go to the next picture. This is the picture of this region in Israel. And it's fascinating when you go there, it looks very much like Santa Rosa or like the Sonoma Valley. It's, it's amazing how California's um, climate and regions look just like Israel. So in this area, because there was the rolling hills with trees and flatlands in between them with all the agriculture, It was very hard to defend because it was almost like there was these snaking valleys that these armies could come right up and not be seen as they come right up these valleys and then they could sneak in behind, grab uh, all the grain from the storage bins in the towns and then go back to the flatlands where they lived and they'd never be seen. It was very hard to defend. So this is what was happening with this Philistine army, an enemy of Israel was coming up these valleys and stealing grain from an Israelite town. And David is the one who comes to help, right? This is the normal responsibility of a king, and Saul does nothing. And here we see David acting like the king. Now, I imagine David is sort of like um, William Wallace and his men in the movie Braveheart. Everybody seen the movie Braveheart? Okay, like two of you? All right, it's like, I, I would imagine David like painting his face, you know, he's... He's kind of this man of, of uh, character and strength, a little wild-eyed, uh, but, but a man with a huge heart, someone who just knows the right thing and, and, and goes after it. I just think that that would have been cool if David looked like that. That's what I imagine. Okay, so the Philistines had superior strength, though, over David and his army. It's sort of like the British over William Wallace and the Scots. Okay, um, Now, the Lord promised deliverance for David. And so David's dependence on God as he goes to the Lord to ask for guidance is really seen here. So the phrases, if you want to look at at this chapter here, verses 2 and 4, I want to point out something as we get started with this. Verses 2 and 4, it talks about how David inquired of the Lord. And it uses that very specific phrase. Verse 2, therefore David inquired of the Lord. Now this is a technical term. If you were to study this, It's the term that was used for asking God a very simple yes or no question. If you wanted to know yes or no to a specific thing, this is the words that you would use. So the way that David would have done this is with the priestly ephod. Now, we read about that in the passage. An ephod is a priestly garment that's made out of linen, and it almost looks like an apron if you're going to cook. okay, It goes over your shoulders and you sort of tie it in the back and there were stones mounted on it and where there was these little pockets and inside the ephod was stored these stones called the urim and thumim. Okay? It's these Hebrew words and it was literally like dice that we'd have today. They had different shapes and different markings and this is at least what we think would happen. If you wanted to ask God a simple yes or no question, you would take this priestly ephod, which David now had access to because Everything all backfired on Saul. He destroys Nob, and one priest escapes with an ephod and brings it to David. And so now David has access directly to talk to God. It's like totally backfires on Saul. So now David takes these stones, and he asks God a question, and they would literally toss them on the ground and see what the answer was. And that's how they heard from the Lord. Now, this is a different time than we're living, so I'll explain a little bit more of that later. But David goes directly to God to ask for guidance, and he follows the Lord's guidance right away. He obeys immediately, and he defends this city from the Philistines, even with his under-resourced army. And what does Saul do in the midst of all of this? Instead of rejoicing that one of his own cities was delivered from an enemy, he sees this as a selfish opportunity to trap David. Not a very kingly thing to do. Now, we saw this come out of here, and I, rem- I mentioned that previous chapter with what happened after David went to Nob and the whole city was destroyed. We see that David is still painfully aware of what he, how responsible he was for that city and the tragedy that happened there. So, all of the inhabitants were destroyed, and, and Saul could do this again. So, David, as well as all the citizens of Kala, the city that was saved, they all started to realize Saul could do the same thing. They're in danger. So David comes back to the Lord in prayer, and he asks God what to do. God says if he stays, the people of Caleb will probably say, hey, we don't want to get destroyed. We're going to actually surrender you to Saul. We'll give you to him because that will save us. So so, so David and his his men go fleeing out into the wilderness, and they go out wherever they can go and find shelter. And out in the wilderness, we see David's friend and his brother-in-law, Jonathan, come to encourage him and remind him of the promises of God that David would be king. That's central to the story. We're going to come back to that in a minute here. But the story concludes with this dramatic final chase scene. Okay, if you go to the end of chapter 23, this is sort of verses uh, you know, 24 towards the end. Now, all good action stories have a chase scene, right? Think about any good action movie you've ever seen. There's got to be a really good chase scene. Now, I was just thinking about this. I mean, okay, take a look at this. If you, anybody remember Mission Impossible from, like, the 90s, okay? Awesome chase scene in Mission Impossible, right? Helicopter goes flying down and, you know, uh, Tom Cruise and John Voight are, like, running across the top of a bullet train and the helicopter goes into a tunnel and it chases them and it explodes. Unbelievable chase scene at the end of this, right? Dads, I'm doing all of these action movie things for you, okay? All these illustrations, all right. Okay, in our story, in our story, there is this final chase scene with Saul and David and all of their men running along a hill, and it's incredible to, to watch, okay? They go running along the ridgeline of a mountain, and Saul and his men pursue David, and picture this, okay? So here's the scene. David and Saul and their armies are running on opposite sides of the same mountain, Okay? Imagine, you know, the helicopter shot from above, if you're going to be watching this like a movie. OK, here they go. One army's running along one side, one's running along the other. One is, is running with frantic fear, and the other with frantic rage. And you just see on their faces the different expressions of what's going on. David and his men are fleeing and they're scared for their lives. Saul and his men are fleeing, are, are running towards them with this rage on their faces, and you see how the ridgeline of this mountain sort of closes in to a single point at the end, and you can watch. They're running towards each other, but they're on opposite sides of the mountain, so they don't even know it. They're going to come and head on, and they don't even know they're getting there. So David's men are running. Saul's men are closing in, swords drawn, eyes ablaze, ready to strike, and then all of a sudden Saul is halted by this messenger that comes to talk to him. You see, Saul had mustered his, his army to come and attack David. But he'd left the cities of Israel undefended. Huge mistake. So the Philistines, while they're running and doing this scene, are realizing that now the cities of Israel are undefended, and so we can go and attack. So Saul makes this huge blunder. David and his men narrowly escape. He's like Ethan Hunt, you know, right off the end of the train, right? That's the guy in Mission Impossible? Okay. Nobody's tracking with me with these illustrations. Okay. Now, remember that David and Saul are portrayed as complete opposites. Okay? Complete opposites in every way. They approach things differently. And the actual story of this chapter is broken down to explain that and show it. Okay? The biblical writers, if you've ever seen this before... Biblical writers, sometimes they form the actual stories that they tell into a pattern where the actual words that they use and the story that they tell points to the center of what it is. So this this term of structuring a a story in a particular way can be called a chiasm. And the the letter chi is a Greek letter, and it's shaped like the letter X. So a chiasm in storytelling in the ancient world was a literary form which arranged the elements of the story to tell two or three different parts and then describe the opposites or something related in descending order the other direction. And the center of the story, of that sort of cross, is the middle of the narrative, and that's the most important part. So take a look at this. I actually illustrated this by just sort of giving um, each line of the text in this chiastic form. All right? So you'll see, and I'll describe each piece as we go along, and you'll see the verse numbers on the end. So look at that first set of parallels. This would be A and then A prime. This is verses 1 through 5, where David hears of the attack of the Philistines against the Israelite city, and then he's moved to act to save them. His first thought is for the safety and well-being of the people of Israel, and this is exactly what a king should do. So David prays. You see that in that first letter there, A. David prays, and he asks God directly if he should go to Cala to save the people, and God answers him clearly. So David is in tune with God. David hears God's will, and he acts promptly to obey, and David wins the battle against Verses 24b to 29, Saul is selfishly pursuing David in order to destroy a rival. He's doing it for himself, not for others. He musters his army and leaves nearby cities undefended instead of going to their defense. His concern is for himself and for revenge. And you see Saul's advice and his guidance for action comes from an unnamed messenger, not from God. He doesn't seek the Lord at all. Instead of going on the offensive to save a city, he ends up having to go on the defensive to to try and help his cities after they've been attacked. So in every way, David and Saul are opposites. Okay, now look at the second pair. This is B and then B prime. Okay, verses 6 to 14 and then, and then 19 to 24 there at the bottom. This is where we see where Saul and David looked for help. What happens when they're in trouble? In verses 6 to 14, David realizes that he's endangering himself and his men, as well as the entire city of Calah. So his first reaction is to go to the Lord in prayer. He asks for guidance. He looks to God for help. But look at what Saul does, verses 19 to 24. Saul goes to the Ziphites. These are some Israelites, okay? The Ziphites were actually part of Israel. They lived in the town of Ziph in the hill country of Judah. He asks them for help. He doesn't go to God for help. Saul's foolishness is shown in the fact that he listens to these people instead of God. And he decides on his own accord to muster his troops to follow David. Okay, now look at the last section. This one has no parallel because it's the center of that sort of structure. It's almost like an arrow pointing to the middle of the narrative where it's the most important piece. And this is what the author who wrote this wants to explain to us. Here we see Jonathan encouraging David. David, remember this picture. David is hiding in the woods in the hills of Ziph, and there's this striking moment. The son of the current king, okay, Saul's own son, who would be in line for the throne, comes out to meet David who is the anointed one who's supposed to knock Saul and his family out of power. Jonathan, the very son of Saul, recognizes that it's God's will that David should be king. His dad doesn't. Imagine what David's feeling at this moment. Okay, he's probably scared, tired, beat up, discouraged. I mean, every time he seems to gain a victory of any kind or see God's leading or take a step in the right direction and he listens and he obeys, he's tossed back out into the wilderness and put under threat of capture or death. Can you imagine how discouraged he would be? Now, remember this, though. I talked about this at the beginning, that God has a purpose here. He's refining David, and he's training him to be a king after God's own heart. Now, refining requires heat. You want gold to be pure? you got to stick it in a fire to burn it. If you want to sharpen something, it requires sparks. If you want to train, it requires sweat and sacrifice. Okay, God knows that David's role as king... And actually, his role in the larger picture of Scripture as the forerunner for Jesus Christ himself, who will sit on David's throne, this requires that David, in a way, be beat up and tested in order to refine his trust in God. So it's at this moment of darkness and despair that Jonathan reminds David of the promises of God. Okay, Jonathan encourages him, not with shallow hopes or any clever tricks of, uh, to make David feel better for just a moment, he talks about the rock-solid promises of God. And you know what? I, I I was thinking about this this week. I can relate to David here a little bit, and maybe you can too. A few years ago, I jumped in my my family. We jumped headlong into our third try at planting a church in San Francisco, and. And it came crashing down in February after being really deeply hurt by some people. I felt shoved back out into the wilderness for like a third time, fourth time. I felt crushed and discouraged and just honestly just worn out. Maybe you can relate to what that feels like. But you know what? I had people like Jonathan come to me and those moments of despair, um, I had moments where I was in, in prayer and, and just reading scripture where the Lord just impressed on me to, to read something that really helped me. It, it was these moments where people a- a- a reminded me of the promises of God. And I realized, and this is maybe a fresh lesson, I think I knew it, but now I know it by experience in another way. That God's primary goal with my life and yours is not my comfort or success. It is to refine and purify my faith and my trust. To grow my trust in God and make me more dependent on him. You see, just like David, and this I can relate to, I'm learning how to pray. We're watching this story in chapter 23 of David learning how to be a man of prayer. see, I'm learning how to beg the Lord for guidance. I'm learning to cast my cares on God. I'm learning to let go of the things that I want to control and just let Jesus really be the Lord of my life. See, these are challenges that are opportunities to trust more in Jesus. And I think, honestly, I think that the same message here that David is getting and that I think I've I'm sharing with a little bit of what I'm learning. This is the same message that we all need to hear today. That as Christians, God wants to refine you and train you to know his heart. He wants to teach you to trust him more. Okay, we saw in this passage how Saul and David reacted completely differently when it came to crunch time. Okay, crisis moment when it came to this high stakes, high pressure game that they were playing. They, they sought guidance and they looked and they trusted in different things. Saul listened to people. He trusted well. will. David, although, he sought the Lord in prayer at every turn. It's like we're watching him learn to do that. And when crisis struck, he prayed. That's what he did. So this is the challenge for you and this is for me too. What voice or what voices are you listening to? Are you listening to the Lord's voice like David, or are you listening to other voices in other places like Saul did? Okay, this is a very, very difficult thing for us, especially here, 2018, we're in the Bay Area. We have so many voices vying for our attention. Add to that the fact that we all feel overworked, stressed, without any margin in our lives, We live in this unique and challenging time, and and one of the main reasons is, I don't know if you've realized this, but your phone has completely changed your expectations for life. Do you realize that? We have so many competing voices, competing authorities, competing sources of information, competing sources of entertainment, all at our fingertips every moment, every day. And you know what I think? we need to hit the pause button here for a minute and consider if we are really employing wisdom when it comes to these things. Because here's something, maybe this isn't such a secret, but God's not going to text message you. (laughs) Okay? He's not going to use Facebook Messenger. He doesn't have a blog you can read. He isn't going to comment on your Instagram. Okay? Okay? We actually, maybe for a moment, need to put our phones down, turn off our TVs, shut off the social media for a moment to create enough space and margin to be able to actually talk to God directly. Do you even, this is something that I was trying to grapple with this week, do we even grasp how incredible it is that we can talk to God directly? Or have we lost our sort of wonder and amazement at the fact that because we belong to Jesus Christ and he's seated at the right hand of God as our mediator and we have the Holy Spirit as an advocate, that we have direct access to God Almighty. That is unbelievable. I think we have to stop and sort of wrap our minds around this. This is a unique privilege that we have to enter the presence of God. So let me ask you this. Have you really pressed... To experience the presence of God. Now, you might be sitting here today feeling like you're in a wilderness. We tie this back to David. Just like David, you might be in a time of testing or refinement or discouragement. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, everything seems to be going really well. Maybe on the outside. You live in the Bay Area, you have the education, the good job, family, the best restaurants in the country around here, beaches, mountains, sunshine. You got the whole thing here. But maybe if you're honest with yourself, chances are, deep down, you probably feel like you're in a wilderness spiritually or emotionally. I think we have to consider the unique opportunity that we have to know God's presence. Okay, think about David, and think about the time that David lived. said we were going to kind of come back to this. He was casting lots to hear from God. They lived in a time where the presence of God was in the tabernacle. This tent that was constructed to take and hold the presence of God. So I want you to hear this. This is something I was was struck by this week. There's a pastor and theologian from about 100 years ago. His name's A.W. Tozer. He's a wonderful uh, writer, if you ever pick up any of his books. He he said this uh, about the tabernacle, and it'll be up on the screen. He said this, "The, the returning sinner first entered the outer court where he's offered, he offered a blood sacrifice on the brazen altar and washed himself in the laver that stood near it, a holy place where no natural light could come, but the golden candlestick which spoke of the light of Jesus, the, of Jesus, the light of the world, threw, off, threw its soft glow over all. There also was the bread of the presence to tell of Jesus, the bread of life, and the altar of incense, a figure of unceasing prayer. Though the worshiper had enjoyed so much, still he had not yet entered the presence of God. Another veil separated from the Holy of Holies, where above the mercy seat dwelt the very God himself in awful and glorious manifestation. You see, Tozer's point here is that people in David's day had to stop before that last veil. They could not enter the Holy of Holies. The presence of God was blocked off. Okay, no one could enter the actual presence of God except the high priest, but once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But here's the kicker, friends. Jesus is the ultimate and final high priest. Amen. At the moment he died on the cross, that final veil was torn from top to bottom. Do you realize the significance of this? Okay, listen carefully. Jesus, by his blood his death, we can now enter the presence of God freely. Okay, Tozer goes on to say this. It's going to be up on the screen here. Ransomed people, that's us, need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. It's more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. Friends, this is the reality of the promises of God that we enjoy today, that you and I can enter the presence of God and know him personally and enjoy him every moment of every day. Now, I think this is so important. It's so important for all of us, but I want to say a word here to you dads out there. I believe that maybe the greatest gift that you can give your family is to learn to, as Tozer says, push on into, the, into God's presence and live your whole life there. See, dads, you need to learn to be men of prayer. I'm learning this. Okay, when I think about my two girls... I want them to have a dad who doesn't just hold the correct doctrine of God. But a dad who prays. A dad who knows the presence of God in conscious experience and enjoys the presence of God every day. That's what my girls need. So let me ask you, dads, do you hesitate to enter the Holy of Holies? Is your life so full of distractions, your mind so occupied with self-important things that you aren't even you don't even see that the veil is torn straight in front of you? Or will you choose by the blood of Jesus to prayerfully and purposefully take a step into the very presence of God? You see God is our heavenly Father, and this is and because of that it's not just a question For dads, it's a question for all of us. I want to just challenge all of us. We are all God's children. So when you think about the picture of who God is as our Heavenly Father, I want you to picture this today. Your Heavenly Father is not distant. He's not manipulative. He's not demanding. He is not abusive. He's not lazy. He is not crude. He is not violent. He is not set against you. Your heavenly Father will never abandon you. He is waiting for you to enter his presence, to give you a hug, to quiet your fears, to be your source of strength, to take care of your needs, to protect you, to let you feel the certainty of his never-failing love for you because he is a good, good Father. You might be in a place of wilderness, You might be in a place of suffering or despair. You might be in a place of complacency or pride or arrogance. I firmly believe, though, that in order to be healthy as a as a as a believer spiritually, emotionally, to be able to to understand what it means to follow Jesus, we have to embrace the unique privilege that it is to enter the presence of our Heavenly Father. We need to pray. We need to pray, like David, not because prayer is a tool to get us what we want, but because prayer is that first step to entering the presence of God, to entering the Holy of Holies. And we can enter because of Jesus. So let me leave you with these words from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And as I read this, these few verses, I just want to invite you to to maybe close your eyes, to listen intently almost as an act of prayer. Because these words are a promise from God himself. I want you to hear this like Jonathan encouraging David as an encouragement of the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way is faithful, and let us us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Lord, we want to be in your presence. We desperately need to be in your presence. Lord, we count it an unbelievable privilege that we can come to you directly. That as your children, you are our father standing with open arms waiting for us. Help us return to you, Lord. Maybe this is a moment where um, there might be someone here who has never come running back to their father. Lord, I pray that this would be a moment where we can turn to you and step into your presence. Or maybe there's those here who have, who have uh, uh, not been or felt like they've even been near your presence in a very long time. Teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us to seek your guidance, your presence. Teach us to trust you more. Refine us, Lord. Lord. Don't make us bitter or frustrated or confused by times of wilderness. But bring dear friends and brothers and sisters and bring them with words directly from your scriptures and your promises to encourage us, Lord. To remind us of the goodness of who you are and the, the sure foundation it is to be bought by the blood of Jesus. Teach us to be in your presence, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to the Lord's table now, and I want to encourage you, if this is a, a moment where you feel like you want to take that step into the presence of God, even if it's just, man, I haven't prayed in weeks. Take these few moments and talk to God. You have access to your heavenly Father directly. And the symbols of what we celebrate at this table, the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus, are the the means by which that veil has been torn and the access has been granted. So we're going to celebrate that this morning. So if you need to pray, take a few minutes to pray. If you want to pray with someone, go to the back. We'll have some people on our prayer team in the back who would love to pray with you. But I just, I'm praying and I'm hoping that this would be a moment for you to experience the presence of God and to be able to seek him in a fresh way. We remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed after he'd given thanks, he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after they ate, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.